Let's start with uh, the words um, from Luke 8, as uh, paraphrased by Eugene Peterson in the message. One day, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat. Let's cross the lake, he said, and off they went. It was smooth sailing, and he fell asleep. A terrific storm came up suddenly on the lake. Water poured in, and they were about to capsize. The disciples woke Jesus. Master, master, we're going to drown. Getting to his feet, he told the wind, silence, and the waves quiet down. And they did. The lake became smooth as glass. Then he said to his disciples, where is your faith? They were in absolute awe, staggered and stammering. Who is this anyway? He calls out to the winds and the sea, and they do what he tells them. So this story from Luke 8 is familiar to most of us, I think. Uh, and it's one that I've alluded to a few times in messages that I've given over the past few months. Um, we've talked about this idea of, of storms in our lives a couple different times. We talked about it in Jonah when he was on the boat with the sailors. And uh, we talked about it uh, in Hebrews 6 when we looked at hope as being an anchor for our souls. And as we study the book of Hebrews and we come to Hebrews 11 this morning... This theme keeps coming to mind as it seems uh, more and more obvious that the recipients of this letter are in a storm of their own of sorts. Um, based on the way that the author has been encouraging them along the way, it's as if they are like the disciples in Luke chapter 8. They're taking on water. Things are looking bad. They're panicking, and they're ready to jump ship. And it's almost as though at the end of Hebrews chapter 10, which we looked at last week, uh, the writer is asking them the same question that Jesus asked his disciples in Luke 8. Where is your faith? He's saying, don't give up. And again, last week we finished off Hebrews chapter 10, and there was this encouragement in verses 19 through 25, and then there was a warning in verses 26 through 31. The encouragement was to draw near to God because of the sufficiency of Christ's work, that he's made a way. The warning was to not show contempt for the sacrifice that Christ gave, to not take it all for granted um, by going back to our old habits and our patterns of sin. And then the author uh, wrote in verse 35, which we read this morning, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. And at the end of the chapter, he kind of introduces these ideas of endurance and faith, two ideas that he's going to develop further in, in the later portion of his letter. He's encouraging the Hebrews to hold fast to their confidence in Christ. And he's about to explain that endurance and faith are tools that are going to help them along the way. And first, he outright says it in verse 36 of chapter 10. He says, for you have need of endurance. And then in verses 37 through 39, he uses a quote from Habakkuk 2 to introduce this idea of faith, which he expands on in chapter 11. So verses 37 to 39, for yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And then he goes right on into Hebrews 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the co conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So in this first verse of Hebrews 11, the author is making a specific connection between faith and hope. He has this specific desire for his audience 
in faith or in trust to look forward to what is coming down the line with confidence. And as Graham alluded to this morning, we've, we've seen one theme in Hebrews along the whole way. We've seen this theme that Jesus is better. It's come out over and over again in the first 10 chapters. But we've also frequently had this underlying theme of hope pop up as we've studied the book. The expectation that there is a better tomorrow, a city to come. That's the name of the series, which is an allusion to chapter 13, verse 14, where it says, here we do not have a lasting city. We are seeking the city which is to come. And right here in this first verse of Hebrews 11, again, the author is bringing this idea of hope and connecting it specifically to faith, saying that faith is confidence in what we hope for. It's assurance about, we do not, about what we do not yet see. It's certainty regarding that future city to come. Faith gives certainty that the things that we hope for will actually come to pass. It takes us from wishful thinking to a certain assurance that these things are going to be. And this morning, we're looking specifically at the first three verses of Hebrews 11, and then Harold has the, re the, the rest of the chapter, all 37 verses to cover next week. So even division there, I think. Um, and last Sunday after the service, Harold and I were standing here, and we were kind of chatting through some of the big ideas of this chapter, and he brought up an illustration for me that I quite liked, and so I'm going to steal it here this morning. Um, <clears throat> sometimes today we use this word hope uh, differently than the biblical writers do. You know, oftentimes we use that word, when we use that word, we sort of mean that we're, we're wishing for something. Um, it, the word hope doesn't always imply today any sort of certainty about the thing we're talking about, right? I hope I win the lottery. I hope I pass this test. I hope the Leafs win the cup. But the biblical writers use hope slightly differently. There's more certainty around the thing that is hoped for. For example, it might be more like the way, and this was the illustration uh, Harold gave me, it might be more like the way we hope for spring. A number of weeks ago when we were in the middle of these minus 20 degree temperatures, I'm sure some of us were looking forward to spring, we were hoping for it even. But we didn't hope for it in the way that we hoped that we were going to win the Lotto 649 or the, the Leafs win the cup. We looked forward to spring with expectation, certainty that it will come. We trust that it will. We have faith that it will. Ultimately, we can't prove that it will, but there's a sense in which we know that it will. And I don't think many of us spent a whole lot of time in January or February on the edge of our seats wondering if spring was going to come in March or April. It was more just a matter of when. We have an assured hope that eventually it's going to get here. And this is the sense in which the author is writing about faith and hope in Hebrews chapter 11. Faith is confidence that the things that we long for, the things that we've prom been promised through the gospel, the forgiveness of sins, the reconciliation to God, the removal of darkness, pain, and suffering, these things will come to pass. As surely as spring follows winter, as surely as the sun rises in the east, all his promises are yes and amen. But the truth that the author communicates actually has a, like one more layer to it, it seems. Because in verse 2, it says this, for by it the people of old received their commendation. We're going to see in the rest of Hebrews 11 a bunch of ancient exemplars of faith. And they are praised specifically for their trust in God, for their faith. And verse 39 says it this way, all these having gained approval through their faith. They gained approval, they gained commendation, Hebrews says, before God because of their faith. It wasn't just something that gave them like positive thinking in sticky situations. Faith was actually the means by which they were made right with God. 
Abraham is the archetype for this, we read in Genesis 15. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. His trust in God was the thing that affected his standing before him. Faith is confidence in God's promises because it's actually the means by which we access God's promises. And that's what makes verse 1 in Hebrews 11 even more powerful. It's not just that choosing faith is going to give us a subjective experience about God's promises being more likely to come true. But, it, but choosing to trust in God, choosing faith, is what makes them an objective reality for us. We, we respond to his offer in faith, and he makes us recipients of his promises. And that's why faith is about more than just positive, wishful thinking. It's, it's actually the channel through which we receive our salvation, our standing with the Lord, and everything that comes along with that. Hebrews, or Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 um, says it this way, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So, of course, there's, there's not the sense in which faith causes our salvation. Um, we don't make it happen for ourselves. It's not as though have, by having faith, we make God faithful. Any more than by hoping for spring, we cause it to arrive. But it is by faith that we enter a secure relationship with God in the first place. And there is a sense in which when we have hope for something like spring, it brings its benefits on early for us. Because looking forward to spring and summer, we can all think of how that kind of extends the enjoyment in a way. Because it, it gives us hope in those dark winter days. It makes the bitter cold more bearable. And after we've entered a right relationship with God in the first place, the continued development of our trust and our faith, it can enhance the experience of benefiting from his promises. To the extent to which we choose to trust that he is good, we will experience his goodness. Knowing that one day he will calm the storm makes the waves seem a little less daunting. Now, of course, this, this doesn't mean we don't have periods of doubt. I'm sure that many of us know through personal experience that just because we believe something once does not mean that we are going to go on believing it with the same conviction day in and day out. We might be initially convinced that something is true or someone is trustworthy, but sometimes it doesn't take very much to shake that. So if we extend the theme of storms at sea a little bit, we can think of the story of Jesus walking on the water and when Peter jumps out of the boat. In Matthew 14, Peter has enough faith to initially step off the boat and start walking towards Jesus, but he's quickly distracted by the waves and the wind. He loses focus, he starts to drown. Now, if I'm honest, I don't really blame Peter in that situation. I probably would have had a, oh no, what have I done moment as well. I probably would have lost focus on who was right in front of me. Ultimately, faith isn't about pretending the waves aren't there. It's about remembering why we stepped off the boat in the first place. Faith isn't about ignoring doubt. It's about remembering reason. I, I really don't think I can explain this point any better than C.S. Lewis did in Mere Christianity, so I'm just going to read a few paragraphs of what he wrote in that book. He lays the idea out really clearly that faith, it's not blind, irrational hope, but instead it's reasoned trust. He says this, I used to assume that if the human mind once accepts a thing as true, it will automatically go on regarding it as true until some real reason for reconsidering it turns up. In fact, I was assuming that the human mind is completely ruled by reason, but that is not so. 
For example, my reason is perfectly convinced by good evidence that anesthetics do not smother me and that properly trained surgeons do not start operating until I am unconscious. But that does not alter the fact that when they have me down on the table and clap their horrible mask over my face, a mere childish panic begins inside me. I start thinking I'm going to choke and I am afraid they will start cutting me up before I am properly under. In other words, I lose my faith in anesthetics. It is not reason that is taking my faith. On the contrary, my faith is based on reason. It is my imagination and emotions. The battle is between faith and reason on one side and emotion and imagination on the other. Now faith is the art of holding on to things your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. That is why faith is such a necessary virtue. Unless you teach your moods where they get off, you can never be a sound Christian, but just a creature dithering to and fro with its beliefs really dependent on the weather and the state of its digestion. Consequently, one must train the habit of faith. Faith is something we need to practice. And I think sometimes faith gets a bad rap because some people think when we're faced with doubts, whether brought on by emotion or by reasonable questions about belief, reacting with faith means sticking our fingers in our ears and saying, la, 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 I don't want to hear it, la, 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 I have faith, it's all going to be okay, la, la, la. And maybe that's what faith is to some. But I really don't think that's the faith that C.S. Lewis is talking about. That's not the faith that Hebrews is encouraging its readers towards. And it's not the quality of faith that the Lord is ultimately desiring to see developed in us. No, the faith that we're talking about is one that considers truth and makes a decision to trust. And many Christian writers and apologists rightly make a distinction between this Hebrews kind of faith and what some might call blind faith. There's an effort to advocate for religious belief as something that um, can be held by rational thinking people. In some ways, I, I think that emphasis on defending faith in that way um, in that manner is really a product of our culture in times where we have this really high value placed on rationalism, logic, and reason. But this effort does provide some valuable perspective. Now this morning, an exhaustive survey of all the reasons why religious faith is reasonable is beyond the scope of my message. But I will say this, there are a lot of questions that modern skeptics rightly ask about faith, and we would do well to engage with them, to investigate them. I think it's a necessary exercise for us and for a few reasons. First, it's just healthy for us. Tim Keller writes in the introduction to his book, Reason for God, that a faith without some doubts is like a human body without any, any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. Those who know a little bit about my, my story and my walk with the Lord will know that uh, during my time in university, I went through a period of questioning just about everything to do with, with Christian faith. Um, this was mostly an internal struggle for me, and I don't think that it's a terribly unique experience. I think there's plenty of people that have a similar story. Um, but I do know that I came out on the other side of that with a deeper conviction of why I believe what I believe. The walk with doubt served to strengthen my faith. That's not to say that I, I never struggled with doubt again, but I do feel like I developed these antibodies that Keller describes. Ultimately, wrestling with the doubt was healthy for my faith. But the second reason we should wrestle with doubt is, is not only for our own faith, but for the faith of others. We are called to engage with our culture, to bring the gospel to bear on the world. 
And part of that means engaging with people's questions and extending grace to those who come to a different conclusion than us. Keller goes on in his book, believers should acknowledge and wrestle with doubts, not only their own, but their friends and their neighbors. Such a process will lead you, even after you come to a position of strong faith, to respect and understand those who doubt. I know that after I came out the other side of that period of questioning, I felt the ability to empathize with those who found themselves in that same place, regardless of where they ultimately landed in it all. And as a result, I think that my heart was brought in line with God's with respect to those who doubt and have questions about faith, or at least closer in line. In 1 Peter 3, we read about it, um, we read this, this admonishment from the apostle. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. And so we should pay attention to the, the doubts and questions of others. But finally, working through our questions about faith is a good thing because honestly, if this whole thing isn't true after all, we should want to know that. Paul wrote this to the Corinthians. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now, obviously, Paul didn't believe that we are to be pitied. Neither did the author to the Hebrews. Quite the contrary. They spent a great deal of time defending the faith. In Hebrews, the author has spent a lot of effort to remind his his readers, that we don't only have hope in Christ in this life only. We have hope for a life that is to come. Hebrews is a pastoral letter. The author sees his audience in need of both encouragement and warning. He acknowledges that they are in a storm of sorts, in a place of doubt, maybe on the precipice of abandoning, abandoning their faith and their trust in Christ. And he keeps reminding them of the reasons for their faith. The questions they were asking then are different than the questions that we ask today or others outside the faith ask today, but it's important to note that the author of Hebrews went at it. He addressed those issues of the day. He encouraged this audience of Hebrew Christians who were considering this return to the comfort of the Mosaic law and the old covenant to remember, to consider, to reason through the truth that Jesus is better. He's better than the angels that deliver the Mosaic law in the first place. He's better than Moses and the promised land. He's the better high priest. He's the better sacrifice. The author makes this case throughout the whole letter that the Hebrews should not succumb to their doubts, but they have good reason for their faith. And then it culminates in chapter 10, verses 19 and following. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. This call from the author to his readers is to have faith. Have confidence in the hope that you have. Have certainty about the truths about Jesus, his work, and his promises. But more than that, have trust in Christ himself. Darcy pointed this out in, in uh, verse 23 last week. The operative word in that verse is for. Hold fast to hope for he who promised is faithful. Faith is not about ignoring doubt. It's about remembering reason. But also, faith is about more than belief in something. It's about trusting someone. In uh, Hebrews 11, verse 3, 
we read this. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. This faith that we have is in the creator of the universe himself. And of course, tied to that faith is belief of certain facts about him. What we believe intellectually about God is, is not an unimportant thing. In other epistles, Paul spends a, great, uh, or a good amount of time correcting and teaching. He admonishes churches to look out for false teachers and false doctrine. In 1 Timothy, the church is referred to as the pillar and foundation of truth. And in Acts, there's this guy named Apollos, who some actually believe was the writer of this book of Hebrews. Um, but in Acts, we find him speaking boldly, teaching people about Jesus. And when Priscilla and Aquila hear him, they actually take him aside and they explain the word of God more accurately to him, it says. So we see plenty of examples in scripture that truth, understanding, doctrine, these things are important, not only in an abstract sense, but in a very practical sense. I mean, that's why we study the scriptures as we do in church. That's why we have this every Sunday morning. But ultimately, our ability to have a relationship with the Lord is not dependent on our capacity to grasp an intellectual theory about him. I'll go back to the example of Abraham in Genesis. The scriptures do not say that he passed a doctrinal exam and then got righteousness. Recall that he lived in a time without any scriptures. He had no Mosaic law. He had no gospels. He did not know the name of Jesus. But he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Fundamentally, his faith was trust that God was faithful. And God said, all right, we're good. And then Abraham's life demonstrated this that this trust in the creator, it ran deep. Of course, he had his moments, but overall, his actions demonstrated where his faith was. Ultimately, this is the call of the book of Hebrews. Have faith not only in the truths about God, but in God himself, in his character and in his goodness. And, I mean, that's really the call of scripture as a whole. Think back to the teaching of Jesus in, in Matthew 6, where he calls us not to worry. What's the logic there? Well, the logic is that we have a good father who knows what we need even before we ask him. And then in John 14, he similarly says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. You see, the Christian faith is relational. It's personal, not in the sense that it's something for us to keep to ourselves, but in the sense that it all hinges on a person. What this means is that we don't have to understand everything to be able to live in peace and with security. We don't have to understand the theological intricacies of Christianity. We don't have to reconcile all these difficulties of injustice, evil, and brokenness of the world. We're not going to understand everything, and we need to learn to be okay with that. In my experience of persistent doubt and questioning in my early 20s, I recall feeling overwhelmed and bombarded on every side by these questions. Questions of or origins as it related to creation versus evolution, questions of the pro problem of evil, questions of the reliability of scripture, um, the Old and New Testaments, was Jesus a real person, etc., etc. But at some point in my walk and in my journey, I found myself influenced by teachers, particularly N.T. Wright, the archbishop, who boiled it down to the question of this, who was Jesus? And more specifically than that, were the gospels accurate representations of his life and his identity? And even more specifically, did Jesus actually die and rise again? Because if he did, if he, said, if he is who he says he was, and a lot of other things will flow out of that. 
Like, if I can believe that Jesus rose from the dead, meaning that he was God himself, well, then some of those other challenging things that I come up against in Scripture, they become a little bit easier to swallow. And at the very minimum, if I don't understand it, I can say, well, I trust Jesus on that one. Now, I don't think that this means I should give up a drive to know more and to understand, to be curious about these difficult issues. I don't think it abdicates that responsibility for us. But it does give us a peace while we investigate these things, a rest, because ultimately our trust is not tied to whether or not some seemingly fantastical story in the Old Testament is or isn't literal history, or it's not tied to whether or not we can resolve the problem of evil in our heads. It's just tied to who Jesus is and whether or not we trust him. And that one to two year period felt like a pretty significant storm for me emotionally. Um, but at the end of the day, its resolution boiled down to me determining the answer to that question. Who is Jesus and do I trust him? And as we think back to the story of the disciples and Jesus on the boat in Luke chapter 8 that we opened with, this is kind of where the story lands too. In 8.25, Jesus asks his disciples, where is your faith? And the disciples are asking themselves, who then is this? That he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. These are the right questions to be asking. The answer to their fears in that moment lay in deciding what they thought about that man in front of them. The man that they had seen heal the crowds, who they had heard teach with authority, who would go on to feed the 5,000. Would they trust him? And these are the questions that we have to ask ourselves too, day after day. Like we said earlier, they seem to be the questions that the author of Hebrews is asking his audience. Where is your faith? Because everyone, religious and unreligious alike, we all have faith underlying our worldviews. We all put our trust and our hope in something to get us through this life, to help us deal with the ups and downs, to fill our longings, to give us security and steadiness. And if we've made the decision that we want our faith to be in Christ, if we've decided that we believe that Jesus is who he said he is, and that we want to trust him, then there's one more thing we need to remember this morning. Faith isn't always a feeling, it's a discipline. Remember the last line of that C.S. Lewis quote from earlier. Consequently, one must train the habit of faith. He then goes on. The first step is to recognize the fact that your moods change. The next is to make sure that if you have once accepted Christianity, then some of its main, main doctrines shall be deliberately held before your mind for some time every day. We have to be continually reminded of what we believe. Neither this belief nor any other will automatically remain alive in the mind. It must be fed. We must feed ourselves continually with the truth about Jesus to remind ourselves to trust in him. We need to regularly call to mind that Jesus is better. Better not only than the angels, the law, the priests, and the sacrificial system, but better too than anything we're tempted to put our faith in in this life. Better than a perfect family. Better than a perfect house, a perfect job. Better even than a perfect church. He is better. He is trustworthy. And we spent a lot of time this morning talking about our faith in God, our response to him. And I think it's necessary to do that because really that's, that's the admonishment in the book of Hebrews. That's where it's been building towards. The author has been continually reminding us, this is who Jesus is. This is what he's done. This is what it can mean for you. And now the question for us is, where is our faith? What are we going to do about it?
And as we seek to heed that call to trust Christ daily, to not be blown back and forth by winds and waves of doubt, we do recognize in humility that we are weak. We will stumble. We will walk two steps forward and one step back. We will take our eyes off Jesus and we will only see the waves. We will start to sink. But in that moment when we cry out, Lord, save me, as Peter did, Christ will be there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm because his love endures forever. Just for good measure, one more passage from mere Christianity to close. On the whole, God's love for us is a much safer subject to think about than our love for him. Nobody can always have devout feelings, and even if we could, feelings are not what God principally cares about. But the great thing to remember is that though our feelings come and go, his love for us does not. It is not wearied by our sins, our, our, different, our indifference, and therefore it is quite relentless in its determination that we shall be cured of those sins at whatever cost to us, at whatever cost to him. Amen.